and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we talk about stories which we think are interesting and important, but which sometimes don't quite catch the attention of the mainstream media as we know and love it. I'm joined today uh, by two very special guests. We have Kate Andrews, who is news editor of the IEA. Kate is very rarely off our screens, um, always uh, good value. And Peter Franklin, associate editor here at Unheard. Hello, welcome to both of you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Pleasure, pleasure. Right, Kate, I'm going to crack on and go to you for your first underreported story. So what I wanted to flag up, which in all fairness has been on some mainstream media websites, but I'm not sure to the extent that it should be, um, is the story about President Trump deciding to pardon Alice Marie Johnson. Johnson was a first-time nonviolent drug offender who got sentenced to a lifetime in prison. Having already served 21 years of that sentence, she proved herself to be a model citizen, despite being behind bars, contributing back to the community that she was in. And uh, celebrity, socialite, media extravaganza Kim Kardashian West picked up on her story and really for one of the first times that we've seen Kardashian West do, decided to get involved in politics, met with the president, spoke to him about prison reform and asked him to pardon Johnson. Um, And just under a week later, he has done it. And I I think this flags up two really important issues. The first is overall looking at drug reform and prison reform in the United States. We incarcerate so many, particularly young, particularly ethnic minority men, um, uh, very often for nonviolent crimes. And of course, this leads to increased crime when they get out of prison. They're significantly more likely to reoffend. Um, I, I think our drug policy and our prison policies feel very badly and it needs to be reformed. So any step that the president makes in the right direction is one I'm going to support. The other side of this, of course, is that this came about because one reality TV star met with another. (laughs) And there are questions to be asked about how policy is being made in the United States right now. And even though I personally very much support Kardashian West in her effort to highlight the issue of prison reform, not going against her on this issue in the slightest, I'm someone who thinks that while citizens should absolutely be able to step up and have their voice heard, I still value experts when it comes to determining public policy. Okay, how old-fashioned I you? know, it really is. I, I, I like a bit of a mix, you know, and, and I, I worry that, that that side has gone completely out the window with the President of the United States. So in this case, I think we're getting some good news, but that will not always be the case. I mean, I have to say, I am going to be absolutely honest, I cannot stand Kim Kardashian. I hate saying that as a feminist because I do want to love all my other sisters, but she does absolutely get on my nerves. There were two things that I found really shocking. A, she put some clothes on for this meeting, which was quite amazing. And she was wearing like a black suit. I she know. Great. Yeah. It was just nice to see her wearing some clothes and not breaking the internet. But that's a separate discussion. Um, the other thing I just thought, my goodness, is this the way we're now going to be doing politics in America? And I thought, oh, God, does this mean that Kim Kardashian is going to run for president? It's going to be the House of Kardashians. That's what's going to well, be. Well, her a- husband's already said he's going to. Kanye Can West, uh, Kanye 2020 or 2024 or something. Well, I'm worried about that, too. Because also it's a bit... Um, It's like an emperor's pardon, isn't it? Rather than looking at things structurally. Peter, what's your take on this rather incredulous story? Well, I've got a fairly vague idea of who the Kardashians are. (laughs) I'm afraid I don't keep up with them at all. (laughs) Very good. But um, on the serious matter of prison reform, um, you know, unlike Kate, I 
am very much in favour of drug laws, but not um, the the sort of correctional aspect of that in America, which is to lock people up in ridiculous numbers and you and know, give out quite disproportionately high. Yes, sentences. I think one in every four prisoners in the world is in America despite America only having about 5% of the population. It's absurd. Um, And what happens in those prisons is often horrific. Um, Sexual assault, especially against men, by men, is um, endemic. Um, It's it's a human rights catastrophe. Um, And and that's got to change. But then what do you think the solution is? Um, Kate, do you think... I mean, we've actually had this big debate in this country and I feel it's going to rear its head again because we have a similar situation. With a lot of young men locked up, lots of uh, BAME uh, men, drugs. It's a huge, I mean, I was in Brixton prison recently. Everyone, just young, young guys mm-hmm. in. And actually quite minor drugs offences. Do we need to just have a massive radical rethink of our drugs laws here and also in America? Oh, absolutely. Actually, the U.S. is moving faster on this than the U.K. Really? Is. Yeah, the president's done some interesting things recently. Um, he's rolled back a lot of federal uh, legislation, particularly internally, that suggested that the federal government would crack down on states that had legalized marijuana. Um, he's rolling that back so that states that have legalized are ma- basically going to be left alone. Um, and it's not that I'm opposed to drug laws. It's that I'm opposed to the war on drugs. Those are Which two, isn't working. Exactly. Those are two very different things. I mean, I would like to see drugs um, legalized to the extent that they can be. I would like to see them regulated. I Would like. Would that to, be all drugs? Um, I mean, this is where it gets really tricky. I would start with marijuana. I would absolutely start with marijuana because what we're seeing out of states like California and Colorado is extremely positive. Um, usage is not spiking, actually, amongst young people. Not only has drug usage, but also alcohol usage um, and all different other kinds of things have gone down since they legalized marijuana. So I I just want to be more sensible about this. It's about recognizing that nonviolent offenders are very different from violent offenders. Um, I don't want to advocate that people should take drugs, but I think that we need to treat it more like alcohol than as a terribly illegal substance. Peter, don't you think there's a lot of merit in that? As somebody who is more on the sort of libertarian side of things, are we not very kind of heavy handed with things like marijuana, especially in this country? Well, this whole idea that we can regulate dangerous drugs is ridiculous. But we do it with um, alcohol. Well, we do. And, and look <laughs> look how much that fails. You know, alcoholism is a huge problem. But it's better than prohibition when it deeply, deeply failed. Well, um, I, I'm not an expert in, in sort of 1920s American policy. What I do know a bit more about, though, is the opioid epidemic right now, where we saw um, uh, legal opioids, um, not only legal, but sort of pushed through the pharmaceuticals industry, um, trigger a huge um, uh, problem with illegal opioids. And the legal so-called regulated trade went hand in hand with then, the illegal trade. That, it was a that, disaster. It that is a disaster. Case, would you say that there's an, a case then for criminalising alcohol and, and some of these opioid products? I think that, you know, you can't read across from one substance to, to the other. Each of them has a particular history and we are where we are with them. But I don't think that making more products, sort of enculturating them, um, sort of removing the taboos around them will end up in anything but disaster. But what, but what if 
laws just are following where culture is. So where I live in Camden, I mean, you literally walk out Camden tube station, the air is thick with uh, marijuana. I never inhale just to <laughs> you and Bill Clinton. that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and, you know, police people have said this before, you know, it is a huge waste of police time and effort to go kind of chasing, you know, young people that are just smoking a bit of marijuana. And also there's a medical case for, for, for people taking marijuana as well. Don't you think, Peter, the resources would be better used doing other things? Well, what, stopping moped crime in London? Because that, well, seems, to be, that of... seems to be considered to be too much bother for the police. I mean, the point is that it's not just laws following culture. Uh, laws can make culture. You but know, we need got, leadership. Got, we need enforcement. But when you've got when you've laws. got young people who have, they're not really having any damage done to them. In fact, the damage that's been done is often the type of drug because it's prohibited is stronger. So you've got this kind of very strong skunk on the streets. And actually, if it was regulated, then you would have sort of marijuana, well, which might where be better. Were those, where was skunk developed? In the Netherlands, I mean, it was originally called nether weed or something like it, and you know, within and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of, uh, let's say, innovation in those areas of America where marijuana has been de- um, decriminalized. But we, we're already seeing the innovation in the sense that people actually know what they're buying and can access all different kinds of products. There isn't much evidence to suggest that somebody who isn't a drug user will become one because it becomes legalized. But there's lots of evidence to suggest that once something is legalized, you can reach out to people. You can help them get access to medical care. You can talk more honestly about, I think, some of the negative effects of marijuana and also harder drugs. Also, crucially, people know what they're consuming. And so you're not going to have these terrible issues of teenagers dying at conferences. Uh, sorry, sorry. You're, you're not going to have this terrible issue of teenagers dying at concerts uh, and, and, and dying on a weekend evening because they were out partying with their friends. I just think we need to be more realistic about this. It's not about praising drugs. It's about getting young and, as I said, almost always ethnic minority kids out of prison. Well, this is going to be an issue that's raging and actually very interesting, Kate, that you've um, illuminated us that possibly the president of the United States might have a a little bit of a progressive attitude to to certain states, which is quite interesting. I very rarely say that the president is progressive, but what we have to remember is that when Donald Trump ran for the presidency in the Republican Party, he never fit in. He was always more liberal on social issues. And I think that hasn't always shown in the year that he, or more than a year now that he's been in office. But on drugs, this is the one area where I can honestly say I actually think he's doing better from a social perspective than the Obama administration. Well, interesting. We'll definitely keep a watching brief on that story. Now, Peter, to you with your absolutely uh, brilliant underreported story, which would have been more reported, um, but other things, uh, sort of events, dear boys, events. Indeed, yes. This is Michael Gove's speech to the policy exchange think tank on Wednesday, which was going to be a big landmark speech all over the front pages. It's had a bit of coverage but a lot less thanks to one of his cabinet colleagues, uh, David Davis, who may or may not be resigning (laughs) at some point in the immediate future. (laughs) Who knows? Okay, so, you know, so why on earth would the journalists want to be, um, you know, covering a serious piece of analysis about the issues that really matter when they could just chase after yet another sort of frothy, um, sort of conservative minister's knifing each other's story. Well, we'll do a bit of that towards the end of this. But tell us, what, what did, um, tell us what uh, Michael Gove 
What are his top lines in his speech? Okay, well, I mean, it's hard to give a top line because it's a proper speech that actually looks at the complexities of the issue. But he recognises that capitalism is in a pretty parlous state. Um, He uh, points out that we've seen over recent decades falling levels of productivity, falling levels of growth. This obviously is in the West rather than in the booming economies of um, East Asia. And um, he, amongst other things, diagnoses a lack of investment on the part of of, uh, private business and an increasing tendency for uh, what's called rent-seeking, which is when uh, people find ways of extracting money from a business for doing fairly unproductive things, um, like just happening to own land in areas of um, high sort of economic growth. Um, And he just sees uh, capitalism being parasitized by all sorts of factors, all sorts of insiders working the system to line their own pockets without taking risks. Um, And he sees that as killing capitalism. And I think he's absolutely right. Do you think he'll um, have a word with some of the people who fund the Tory party that probably do fall under this category? Well, uh, amongst those funders, of course, are the big builders, uh, the big developers. But also the hedge funds. Indeed. Um, and, well, it depends. I mean, hedge funds are a, you know, a very diverse bunch. And actually, compared to the banks, I, I think they're a lot, better because they, well, they actually, haven't got a great rep have they they don't but they do take genuine risks and uh often with their own money so, so compared it's... to the banks who really you know with the you know the hedge funds didn't get bailed out the the, the banks did and i think we have to look more at the sort of establishment finance for the real villains Right. Okay, Kate, what do you think about that? Uh, Well, Gove's speech was refreshing in a way because it was a serious look at the issues that the UK and similar countries, I think you could also read into it, like the US, face today when it comes to the economic system that undoubtedly has been the most successful, particularly at rising people out of poverty. Um, No system is perfect, uh, but it's right for him to address what has become a very crony system of capitalism. A lot of people who are frustrated with the current status quo are tapping into the fact that rent seekers and lobbyists and a lot of people who are already at the top are rigging the system through all different means, through regulation, through monopolies to make sure that they never lose their status and other people are finding it harder to progress. And I appreciated him tapping into that. I am frustrated though. He's done a lot better than say the prime minister or the chancellor who just continue to bash capitalism because they think it will buy them votes. You shouldn't play that game. You're never going to beat the Labour Party at bashing capitalism and offering handouts. Don't go down that road. Gove hasn't, so I appreciate that. But we're not hearing enough from the Tory party at the moment about the benefits of free markets and capitalism and particularly free trade. You know, in this time of Brexit, when we need to be global and open with the world, we're not hearing the positive arguments from anybody. And I think the Conservatives should be a lot better at doing this. I suppose the problem is, is first of all, um, it was just interesting to hear a speech that is not subsumed in Brexit, but then it did mm-hmm. get subsumed <laughs> by Brexit. What I find astonishing about this um, thing, and we talk a lot about it on on Unheard, actually, about tackling capitalism. It feels like it's this edgy new thing, but people have been talking about it 
for such a long time. In fact, when I worked for my former boss, Ed Miliband, he wrote a speech called Producers versus Predators, which he got absolutely killed for, where he started talking about, you know, this idea of, you know, capitalism, bad capitalism, good capitalism, how we should reform things. Um, and he got completely sort of massacred by my many, many uh, right wing commentators and indeed um the Conservative Party. But I mean, this has been an issue that's going on. Ruth um, Davidson wrote for us on Unheard about this. And it's great. You hear lots of, of really interesting but quite platitudinous stuff about this. What can actually be done? Because I think for the Conservatives to do something on this, whether it's Ruth Davidson talking about it, whether it's Michael Gove, you do need to be prepared to almost take on your friends. It's a bit like a Labour leader sometimes has to have a row with, with unions or something like that. Who are the Conservatives going to have a fight with on crony capitalism? Landowners. No, people who, um, your friends, people that um, really you, help you. Yes, landowners, right? Um, if if there's one kind of um, lobby that the Conservative Party has been associated with for centuries, it's the landed interest, yeah. right? And, you know, every... you. you, you you were talking about earlier what we we're going to have for lunch, right? You walk down the streets around this studio, you will see all sorts of nice things for sale, but at ridiculous prices, London prices. They're that price because, you know, what you're eating, what you're funding is the rent that those sandwich makers have to pay just to do business, right? I, I agree with Peter completely, actually. I mean, the one major group that the Conservative Party won't stand up to are their own backbenchers who are in areas which are NIMBY, not in my backyard. And the truth of the matter is that if more people want to feel the benefits that capitalism and free markets can bring, we need to build a lot more homes, we need to liberalize the planning system, bring the cost of homes down. That upsets landowners. That upsets people who paid a lot of money to buy their house, who don't want to see that house price fall, but actually they're operating in a deeply fair system. And it speaks to intergenerational unfairness as well. A lot of older people have become millionaires simply by the fact that when they were in their 20s and 30s, they could afford oh, to get absolutely. on the housing ladder. I mean, Young people now forget it. I mean, we're completely priced out of the market. So from that point of view, wouldn't a great policy for Michael Gove to champion, and absolutely speak to your point, is, is something really tough on inheritance tax, which is seen as one of the most unfair sort of passing on of wealth. Well, the problem with that is that the majority of the public hates the inheritance tax. Sometimes it's not very Peter popular. Said, Peter said, oh, you yeah. need to show leadership but sometimes. More, but more than that, if you're wealthy, you know how to get around yes. it. And I don't mean through evasion or anything illegal. I mean through avoidance. Inheritance yes. tax doesn't actually raise much. But I think scrapping it all together and looking at tax on lifetime gifts would potentially be a much, much better way of addressing this issue. I personally would go for a land value tax mm -hmm. because it's the major landowners, not really householders, that are the issue here, and they're the ones sucking the value out of the economy. I don't know. I think there is an argument that actually, you know, a lot of people feel that, you know, inherited wealth, it, it, you know, I think it's one of those things, it's a, it's a personal issue, but also it is one of the un, most unfair ways of getting wealth. Well, I don't know, because whatever you're inheriting has already been taxed at least once, but possibly twice. And so I think people start to think to themselves, is there any money that I can put anywhere where the government won't keep trying to take half of it? And and I think one of the reasons it is so unpopular is because people are ambitious in the UK. They do think that they can come up with some savings, and they like to pass it on to their children. If a terrible incentive would be, when you're gone, everything that you've produced over this lifetime 
goes to the wind, or in my opinion, worse, goes to the government.、Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that people are uncomfortable with it. But again, I think it can be restructured that people who should be paying more end up paying more, because、yeah. um, at the moment that's just not the case. It doesn't raise very much money. Well, this is going to be fascinating, and it will be really interesting. I think a, a conservative that comes up. With something that will actually look like they are prepared to take on their friends and people, they you know they're real, real friends. That that I think that's going to be、um, the thing to watch. But I wonder as well if this speech is slightly Michael Gove on manoeuvres after Ruth Davidson doing some very interesting stuff. Sure, but、capitalism. to be fair to Gove, he is pushing very hard on the reform of agricultural subsidies and making sure that you know the big farmers. Give something in return for whatever subsidies they still get after Brexit, and in terms of biodiversity and things like that, we certainly need reform in terms of agricultural practices. We definitely need、um, reform, but the capitalism thing is—it's it, just—it's one of those things. You know, you, the right has capitalism. The the left has like it, it's our trade unions and it's how we mobilise our, ourselves at work for good or, or or for ill, and I think until the right, it will just be interesting to see if Michael Gove can move this forward in any way which is actually meaningful. His speech was very very interesting, but there wasn't much substance in it in terms of actually what would one do. But anyway, we will keep a watching brief on this, and definitely come back to it because of course this is a big 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 topic for unheard, and it's something which are Writers do do a lot of analysis and have very good thoughts on it, like the land value tax. Maybe Michael Gove should read Unheard, and he can get a little policy manifesto together. I will say, if anyone can do it, I think it's Michael Gove. He's got a track record of being a changer. So,、mm. um, he certainly if, does on Brexit. If this speech doesn't,、uh, if this speech didn't have the details, I'm sure something will. Yeah, I'm sure something will. Right, we're now going to come on to、uh, the final section of the podcast: heroes and villains. I'm going to start with your. Hero Kate.、Um, so I wanted to pay tribute th- this week to fashion designer Kate Spade.、Um, she's known very famously around the world for her handbags, in particular. And tragically, she passed away this week.、Um, reports are suggesting from the police、uh, that she took her own life. And it's come out this week from her husband, who's just made a statement that she struggled very badly with depression、um, for years, anxiety for even longer. Um, and you know, I, I really just want to pay tribute to a woman who brought a lot of beauty to the world to help women to feel great about themselves when they walk down the street,、uh, to be in the creative industries in the way that she was. And sh- she rose from the bottom. She was working for a magazine, rose up in that world, decided there weren't good enough handbags out there for your average lady going to work, so she made some. And it's a wonderful story. And it's also a very important reminder that it doesn't matter how much money you have or how successful you are. It doesn't matter. How famous somebody is, or what it looks like from the outside—you just never know what's going on in someone's personal life.、Um, reminder to all of us how important mental health issues are, to tackle them, to speak to people about them, and that we need to be kind to one another because you just—you never know what the person across the table or across the street is going through. No, absolutely, and you can make huge assumptions about、um, somebody's life. I, I was a huge fan of of Kate Spade, and、um, I was looking through. Twitter and what was so interesting is as well as all the outpouring of celebrity tributes, real women just loved her for the reasons you said. My favourite story that I saw was、um, this girl saying that you know she always aspired to having a Kate Spade bag, and her dream was that one day she'd have a fancy writing job in New York City,、really? and she'd carry this bag, which was a specific Kate、um, Spade bag with with like.、Um, 
with a sort of tight face on it. So it was like kind of a writer's bag. And she said um, she had made it to New York and then she saw this young girl on uh, the, the tube with that bag and they kind of gave each other a knowing smile. And it was such a, I mean, such a tragedy that somebody whose bags were so bright, so beautiful, so positive had this obviously this this great sadness but um yeah very very sad story and like you say another tragic but timely reminder of mental health issues um peter your hero of the week please my hero um is claire lemon um who is editor of quillette magazine um which has been described as the um the house publication of the intellectual dark web. Now that's that's frightening. That sounds really scary. Um, but actually, it's a, it's a collection of intellectuals who have found themselves in various ways falling out with the academic establishment because they've said various things. They've highlighted research which is supposedly challenges certain. Um, feminist ideas. So what kind of things? Well, for instance, that um, differences between men and women aren't just socially constructed, that there is some biology there, and which is not to justify any sort of discrimination or chauvinism, quite the opposite. Um, For instance, when it comes to testing drugs, it's really important that the tests take into account uh, female biology just as much as male biology because they can have different levels of side effects on men and women. So just having that scientific understanding of human differences um, is really important and they shouldn't be um, covered up or suppressed in the name... Doesn't sound very controversial, though. Well, you'd think, but if you... Um, if you do challenge um, blank slate um, ideas on campus, you can end up in a real pickle as people what, like... What does that... Just explain what blank slate... I, oh, right. What, it's the idea that um, everyone is born basically the same and that any sort of differences, um, social differences that emerge between uh, different ethnic groups, different sexes, different genders, whatever... Um, can only be down to social factors and that biology can't have anything to do with it. And there's a group of intellectuals... Is this basically saying men are cleverer than women? No, (laughs) absolutely not. Is this saying that white people are cleverer than black people? No, it's not saying that either. Um, In fact, it's challenging sort of received ideas about race altogether. Um, So why is it so controversial then? Because it treads upon um, various um, sensitive subjects that have been highly politicised and highly subject to activism on campuses. And you've had people like uh, Brett Weinstein almost literally driven off campus because they've fallen foul of um, activists, left-wing activists. Um, And these are people that are often pretty liberal and left-wing themselves. Uh, Claire Lemon describes herself as, as a liberal. And yet they find that they don't have the intellectual freedom to discuss their findings. Um, Hence the need for Quillette magazine, which has become enormously successful um, and is described by some as being an alt-right publication, when actually it's the alt-right's greatest nightmare because it's allowing people to discuss sensitive subjects 
in a rational way, um, but without the the sort of political anti-correctness of the alt-right, which is to try and find excuses for discrimination and racism and sexism. It's saying, yeah, we're different. Let's work out a way of, of dealing with it and respecting it. Right. Well, that sounds very interesting. Maybe not as scary as I would have thought it to be. I will definitely look into that. But that's very interesting. Thank you, Peter. Now, um, Kate, your villain of the week, please. Well, I've decided to go with the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, but uh, nothing to do with um, foreign issues, actually, for issues right here uh, in London. Uh, Boris Johnson has been given permission, it seems, um, to rebel against the Heathrow Airport expansion vote. Um, this is an MP who has previously said that he would lie down in front of the bulldozers in order to stop Heathrow expansion. Um, his proposal instead at one point was to build Boris Island, where there would be <laughs> another... Um, Airport. Look, I'm all for building another airport, but I'm certainly also for building another runway. I think it it really frustrates me. I'm not saying that there aren't issues to be resolved around a third runway at Heathrow, but it really frustrates me when politicians come out so strongly against things that are quite obviously going to bring down the cost of living for the people that they're representing. Um, And we, you know, the UK's refusal to build anymore around airports has left it so far behind, particularly Asian countries, but countries all over the world, which are expanding and becoming more global. Uh, It means that ticket prices go up for consumers. It means that you get more cancellations. Um, And, you know, in a time where wages have been relatively stagnant, I'd like to think that MPs out there would want people to be able to buy a cheap ticket to Europe or to buy a cheaper ticket to the States or wherever they go. Um, So instead of lying down in front of the bulldozers and throwing his toys out of the pram, I'd appreciate some helpful suggestions for Boris Johnson so that, you know, the UK can become more global, more people can get flights and we can do it in a safe and environmentally friendly way. What I love about the whole um, Boris story is having said that I will do whatever it takes, I'm going to, you know, tie myself to a bulldozer. He's now been given special dispensation to basically not be there. <laughs> to not for, to not voice this. To not be there for the vote. And I'm afraid things like that do, I mean, whatever the rights and wrongs are of his stance, and you, you obviously profoundly disagree with him. I think that's the sort of thing that does make people irritated with mm-hmm. politicians when they kind of voice a particular view and then run. Rig- yeah, exactly. <laughs> run for the hills, get on a one way flight. Okay. Uh, well, they can't get on the one way flight. There's no runway to take off from. <laughs> it's not quite that bad. <laughs> there's no third runway. There's no, there's, there is a runway. It's just quite a congested <laughs> yes, runway, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Peter, now you have a terribly interesting villain of the week. Yes, it's Norman. <laughs> Um, that's just his name, Norman. Um, deeply frightening. He's in fact uh, uh, an AI system. AI meaning artificial intelligence, of course. Um, and he has been programmed by some MIT researchers to... Um, has he been pl- are these intellectual dark webbers? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But what they're up to is pretty dark, however. Uh, they've deliberately programmed a psychopath. So they programmed Norman to be a psychopath. Yes, apparently they show him, um, you know, those Rorschach inkblot tests? (laughs) They show him the inkblots and he comes up with some really disturbing um, interpretations of the inkblots. Now, that's because they've fed him with um, data from a particularly unpleasant um, page on Reddit, which I think discusses various horrific events. Um, and of course, 
we've got to remember that Norman, I've described him as a villain, but he isn't really because he's not a person. He doesn't exist. He's just a piece of computer software that's been programmed to regurgitate information in various fairly sophisticated ways. But there's no... There's no actual person there. I know, but to what being... end? Why would you... Why would you... It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. What's the purpose of this? Why create something which is psychopathic with artificial, brilliant artificial intelligence? For what end? Well, it's to show us that when we rely on artificial intelligence systems to make decisions about our lives, and this has been done in, in, in respect to various things like police databases and all of that, the idea that because something is silicon and not a person, that the system is unbiased well, it's only as unbiased as the information you feed it with and how you design the algorithm that makes it work. Um, so it's a what the researchers are doing is saying, you know, you put in a load of horrific stuff and you'll get a load of horrific stuff out. And it's a very sort of dramatic way of doing it. Um, but I do wish the media would, re would report it in such a way as to make clear that these systems aren't people there's no consciousness there whatsoever i know you say that but then we all get scared that it's all going to be some sort of weird science and then some of this kind of human life will spring to mind now i'm just going to finish off on somebody who i think is both a hero and a villain this week and that's somebody you referred to earlier which is poor david davis who has had quite a week of it and i sort of kind of veer between feeling you know quite sorry for um David Davis, because he's been sort of cut out of what's happening right now on some of these custom unions discussions. And he was meant to be the front man for this backstop idea on what how we would solve the Northern Ireland problem. He clearly doesn't really know that much about what's going on. He's been excluded for some meetings. He's not happy. He said he was going to resign. He might not resign. But then I think he's also a villain because he's kind of brought it on himself because the whole thing is such a shambles. Kate, what's your view? I'm, I'm very sort of torn on David Davis. Well, I think... I think he'll be your hero or your villain, depending what side of the debate you're on. But it almost feels like he can't win at the moment. Um, you know, if he doesn't resign, a lot of hardline Brexiteers will say, you know, you're, you're complicit, really, in a softer Brexit, possibly, that, that we're totally against, that we don't think the public voted for. Um, if he does resign, of course, then he takes himself out of the position of Brexit secretary. And it's very likely that Mrs. May would appoint somebody who is much softer on Brexit. So it's, it's you know, I, I think for those who want to clean Brexit, for those who think that Brexit means Brexit, uh, David Davis staying in that position actually matters more. But it's not obvious how he can win from this from a PR perspective. It's very difficult. P Peter, what's your take on the David Davis dilemma? Well, I think when politicians face, find themselves facing a decision that their government makes, which they profoundly disagree with, then actually resigning is a very healthy thing to do. And I wish there was a lot more resignations on issues of principle. And I think, you know, all of this stuff about, oh, it's terrible how Brexit is tearing the, the, the country apart. Well, I think we need to grow up and realise that sometimes there are difficult decisions that you can't always compromise. Either we go for Brexit or we don't, right? Either we are in the EU or we're not. And, you know, we've got to have a decision. Some people will be happy. Other people will be unhappy. We're in a democracy. We accept it. We get on with it. And if someone can't 
in power can't cope with it, then it's perfectly reasonable for them to express their unhappiness and then resign. Well, I think you're saying that he should go uh, on that on that note. I mean, look, the, uh, whatever your views are on the rights and wrongs of Brexit, I think um, we can all agree it's looking like a bit of a shambles and we haven't got very, very long to go. I feel like this is me writing my Edinburgh show. It's like, you feel like there's const- <laughs> it's a kind of a constant uh, Brexit exam crisis. Uh, this which looming looms. dark cloud. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, listen, well it's a huge decision. Come on. Um, well, it, you know, it, why, do you, why do we sort of think it's ever going to happen cleanly? You know, difficult stuff is difficult by but definition. I think, I think, well, it, uh, well, Brexit means Brexit. We can have all the platitudinous kind of things like that. But I think the thing that people are worried about, I mean, I was at a conference this week with actually non-partisan um, industries, science, aviation, nuclear, uh, they are just all sick of the uncertainty and are very, very um, worried. And they genuinely have not got sort of political skin in the game. They they would not say a bad word about any of the government ministers or the civil servants. Everyone just thinks it is a mess, Peter. And I think that the the other tragedy is because it is sucking up so much energy, there's just not that much space to get other things up. But anyway, we're not going to go down a, a Brexit rabbit hole. Um, thanks very much to my guests, Kate Andrews and Peter Franklin. I've been Aisha Hazarika. You've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. Mm-hmm.